The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. We have two conversations to share with you today. The first is with recent guest Dotan Sagai, a photographer who we interviewed back in episode 355. He just launched a Kickstarter effort to fund a new book that he's publishing on his work in Venice Beach, California. Take a listen. Dotan, uh, welcome again to the Candid Frame. It's a pleasure to have a chance to speak with you about your your your, your project. Why don't you tell us a little more about it? Well, thank you so much, Barionex. It's a pleasure to be here again with you. Um, this is a project that started out um, as a street photography project around LA. It really wasn't focused in, on Venice Beach originally, but uh, I realized little by little, you know, each day I would shoot in a different neighborhood of LA and you know Beverly Hills and so on and and. Hollywood, and I would realize after looking at my portfolio after the first year of doing that, I realized first of all my best shots were really from Venice Beach, and I really wanted to go to Venice Beach much more than I wanted to go to other areas of LA. So there was kind of a, a love uh, relationship developing with Venice Beach that I just couldn't suppress. That really I felt kind of drawn to to that to, to that location and and what was happening there. So I started shooting there a lot more. And really knowing, you know, getting to know the people and everything, and and um, and now it's it's culminating in this book, which I could never have seen, you know, I never envisioned starting this out. It really wasn't where I was going with it. So, uh, but I'm I'm very very excited about it. What what is it when you looked at your photographs? What was it about Venice that made it a unique enough part of Los Angeles that you felt like you were gravitating to repeatedly? You probably know this by by you know having shot around here. Venice is very different from from the rest of LA. I mean, LA is obviously a very diverse. There's a lot of different areas that look completely different. But to to me, Venice almost is an anti LA, or at least it's anti a lot of. It's almost at the opposite of a lot of other neighborhoods. And I'm personally, as you know, just my own, you know, um, you know how I feel about LA. I'm, I'm very. I'm not sure about some of the um, aspects of life in LA as far as the the consumerism and the uh, the all the you know the stars and you know all all these um, the materialistic aspect and all the fancy cars and these are things that I really can't identify very well with. So to me, Venice was sort of the antithesis of that. And that that was very attractive to me. It was also it's very it's a very free spirited place. Very diverse. People get along. You know, people who you would never think of uh, hanging out together uh, get along well. Uh, there's a concentration of subcultures that are fascinating uh, that have a history to them. You know, whether it's the Muscle Beach uh, bodybuilders or the the skateboard culture, which 
you know, has its roots in the, the 70s, 60s and 70s, the, the Z-Boys and the, you know, Dogtown and all of that. The surfers, the street performers, the artists. I mean, it's, I could go on and on and there's just so much in that little boardwalk. So from a photography standpoint, it's like a candy store, essentially. But, but each, each culture, if you dig a little bit deeper, has so much richness to it in terms of, uh, you know, the type of people, you know, the, the story of, of those people that are, that are part of those cultures. Yeah. So. There are a lot of people that go down to, to, to Venice and have done so for decades and made, you know, some very mem- memorable photographs. But they oftentimes are just relegated to sort of the singular image. Right. So why was it important to sort of go through your photographs and put them together in the form of a book? What do you think you accomplished by creating a book with a selective images? Yes. So what, what struck me, you're absolutely right. So I had in my mind when I started this uh, images from, you know, Gary Winogrand and, and some, you know, great, some of the great photographers who had shot in, in Venice. What struck me is that there wasn't, as you said, like a body of work that had been assembled uh, from, from these, and they were really kind of single images here and there. So, you know, I felt like there, there was an opportunity when I started, you know, focusing on Venice Beach as a, as a project rather than just shooting the rest of L.A., I was thinking this really could, you know, if I, if I could just stay with this for a couple of years and really shoot it in depth, there's an opportunity to really show people what the whole of Venice Beach can be and how all those cultures uh, coexist together and and make a kind of a story out of it as opposed to just, you know, the, the, the single image. And I think the in, in large part, by having single images, you really can't comprehend the richness of, of this place. You know, it's, it's really in, in the diversity and, and how many uh, cultures are, are, are crammed into this small space that you really start getting how interesting and, and fascinating a place it is. So I think a book for that was really kind of the ideal format to, to show this. Now, are, are you working singularly on this book or are you working in collaboration with anyone? No, this was um, my work. Um, it took a while <laughs> um, because, you know, to get enough images that I thought were uh, worthy of, of being in a book, it's, you know, getting one image per week or a couple of weeks or three weeks, you know, was, was, uh, was already a tall order. So it, it took a while to get enough images to, to, uh, to put this book together by myself. And there's going to be about 65, I think 67 images total in the book. So it's, uh, it's going to be about a hundred and some pages. Uh, and I'm going to, it's going to have a lot of captions. Uh, I'm actually printing a separate caption booklet to really tell people about the stories behind the images, because, you know, the, the images I think speak for themselves and you can just look at the images and think get a lot of satisfaction from that. But the stories behind them are so interesting. And I've been posting that on Instagram and people are saying, is, you know, people have been asking me, is the book going to have the, that kind of background? Um, and because people really enjoy hearing what, what, what it is like and what, what the life of those, those people is, is like. Uh, and I can really add that layer of, of, of richness in the book. You know, it's always interesting when you take a look at your own photographs when they're contextualized in, in this way, whether it's the form of a book or a portfolio, um, your, your, your relationships to them changes. So how did that change for you as a result of putting together these 67 Im- images for this book? You know, I, I feel very comfortable. I felt very comfortable shooting in Venice Beach. The part that was less comfortable with was putting a book together because 
to me, that was a daunting, you know, you have to choose between your children, basically, mm, yeah. like which ones are going to go in the book. And you like different ones for different reasons. And so, so uh, and I hadn't had the experience of putting a book like this together. So I actually uh, hired uh, a professional uh, editor and, um, and she uh, was able, uh, I was, she, she had experience uh, at uh, National Geographic and the LA Times. Uh, her name is Gail Fisher. And she helped me um, edit the book and figure out basically which images were going in the book, but also how to tell the story and the sequencing of the images. And to, so to answer your question, what I was, what really um, fascinated me was how doing that work of, of editing, editing down to those 67 images and putting them in a certain sequence and arranging them together and coupling some of the images together, you know, on, on uh, oppo opposing pages and things like that, how that really elevated the story to a whole nother level. And I really rediscovered my work as Gail was helping me, you know, sequence it and edit it to, to that book format. Uh, I think it, it just, um, it's, it's a different, um, sometimes I'm having trouble reconciliating that with the individual images that I shot. Uh, it makes it look you know, to take a whole nother level, really, uh, that, that I, I didn't think th those images could, uh, you know, could achieve on, on their own. So it's, I think that I would say that the total is, is more than the sum of the parts. But I love the way you described it as a, as a means by which you rediscovered your photographs, because it's having not only other eyes to see it, but having sort of this restriction of a limited number of images to sort of express your vision. Uh, right. is a real great way to sort of rediscover, you know, not only the work itself, but maybe the, the intent that may have been behind it, that may have been unconscious while you were making the photographs. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And, and there's images that we coupled together. Um, some of those, are, you know, were, some of those are going to be spreads across two pages. But in some cases, we wanted to pair images together. And there's images that I shot at totally different times, um, you know, with a completely different mindset and everything. But when you look at them together, you realize they just belong together. And uh, th that whole process of coupling those paired images together was just a, you know, mind-blowing experience to me. So you're going to be funding this through Kickstarter. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the, the, that effort? When is it beginning? Uh, what can people expect if they want to support the, the project? Oh, yes. Yeah. So um, I guess when this airs, the Kickstarter will probably already be on. Uh, the Kickstarter is launching on the 25th of October. So it, it will help fund, uh, you know, some of the printing of the book. Uh, so I have, there's a publisher involved, but uh, nowadays with photo books, the, the artist has to uh, provide some of the funding to help some of the printing uh, extras and things like that. And um, so people participating in this Kickstarter will essentially kind of be coming uh, with me on this journey to, to get this book, uh, to, to make this, this book a reality, which is, uh, is, is very exciting. It's gonna, the book's going to come out in the spring, and, uh, and the Kickstarter will happen between October 25th and uh, roughly into early December. So um, that, that'll be, uh, during that time, there'll be all kinds of different rewards that people will be able to get between uh, just the book itself uh, or the book with a print, and there'll be different uh, deals uh, where people can buy prints and, and sign books, which they won't be able to get uh, later. So it'll be very uh, kind of exclusive things that you can only get through the Kickstarter. And where can people go to check out the work as well as find out about the, uh, the, the, the Kickstarter? 
So if you go to, so it's not live yet, so I don't have a URL yet, but if they go to Kickstarter and they search for Venice Beach, that will be the only project coming up, I'm pretty sure. So that, that will be a pretty safe way to get to it. Well, Dothan, thank you for sharing uh, uh, your, your latest adventure and your, your photographic journey. I'm real excited to, to, to see the work, and I want you, and I want to wish you the very best of luck on, on, that, on the effort. Well, thank you very much, and uh, thank you for, for this interview. It was a pleasure. And as of this recording, he's already halfway towards his goal. And if you want to help and receive a copy of the book and more, click on the link in the show notes, which is easily accessible via the Candid Frame app or in the show notes on the Candid Frame website at thecandidframe.com. Now, today's guest, Jim Harmer, was well on his way to having a career in the law, going so far as to passing the bar. But it was his passion for photography that led him on a completely different path. Though it might have seemed that he was turning his back on a lucrative career, Jim has managed to succeed both as a photographer and the founder of ImprovedPhotography.com, a valuable resource for learning the ins and outs of photography. As with many of the conversations we have shared recently, I have been enjoying sharing the stories of people who chose to follow their dreams and lead a life that provides creativity, fulfillment, and joy. Well, Jim, welcome to the Candid Frame. It's really a pleasure to, to have you on the show. Thanks uh, to your people for having you reach out. It was uh, good to hear from you. Oh, it's an absolute honor to be on here. I've uh, listened to your show for a long time, and uh, I wish I had the soothing, calm voice that you had. Oh, yeah. Uh, just really, really <laughs> enjoy it, and it's a pleasure to talk with you. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. You started off studying uh, as an attorney. You went so far as to take the bar. And I'm just wondering, what got you started into thinking that you wanted to be practice, to practice law? Boy, well, I went to school in eastern Idaho, uh, Brigham Young University of Idaho, and that's kind of where I got started in photography and started really enjoying that just as a hobby. And I went to law school and... During law school, I started teaching night classes in photography, like adult ed classes, mm -hmm. mostly to retired people in Southwest Florida. The classes, you know, I really enjoyed teaching them, but it felt so repetitive. You know, I'd teach shutter aperture and ISO uh, to one class, and the next month a new class would come in, and I'd teach the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so I made a blog to to teach my class just to have some resources there. And then I started to know, hey, hundreds and then thousands of people are coming here. I don't have a thousand people in my class. <laughs> so during the day, I was in law school and pouring over books and stuff. And then at night, I started writing photography information on the blog. But what, and that's kind of what got it all started. But what spurred your interest in, in, the, in the law before photography? I mean, that's... Uh, I, I guess it felt like uh, I, I wanted to be a professional of some sort, you know? I wanted to, uh, I, I guess, right wrongs and things like that, a mm -hmm. sense of justice. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, you could just see so much good that could be done in law. You know, people say they don't like lawyers until, you know, somebody commits a crime and then they want somebody to, to help put that person in jail. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody uh, likes lawyers until your teenage daughter gets hit by a drunk driver and then you want somebody to help you get justice, right. you know? Um, lawyers really do an incredible amount of good and, and those were, I think, the things that attracted me to it. 
Yeah, because it's because it's quite the transition from going, you know, from possible career in law to a career in photography. One is yeah. is traditionally a lot more lucrative than the other. But, <laughs> yes, that's know. true. <laughs> so, but, but you know, that's that's a lot of time to invest into studying for a particular career, and then sort of jumping ship and, and, and doing something else. For for a lot of people, making that decision can be a really difficult one for a variety of different reasons. You know, when when that moment came. Uh, for you, for you to sort of decide, you know, which path do I walk? Tell me about what you were going through, what things did you have to consider, and what led you to finally may be able to make the choice to commit yourself more to your photography than your law career? Well, I I definitely felt that conflict all through law school, because during the day, you know, I was just pouring over books. Law school is just unbelievably rigorous. It's so, it was so difficult um, to to go through and learn everything you have to. And then at night, I'd go out after my wife and kids were asleep and I'd go do night photography on the beach and everything was just so peaceful and calm. And so I, I really developed that love for it and so for photography. And that, you know, had, had always been, been pulling me. Um, during my, it was really not until my third year of law school, I was only a few months away from graduation when I finally decided, all right, it, I'm, I'm going to go for this. I'm going to mm-hmm. create a business in photography and, and go after it full steam. Now, by then I had already, you know, there were already a lot of people, the blog was already starting to see a lot of success, but, uh, but still it was, you know, put the lump in your throat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but it was, uh, it was an exciting time. Well, I was just talking to Paul from uh, Lens Protocol and mm-hmm. he, we talked about something similar in terms of, you know, him transitioning to uh, a business in which, you know, he didn't know everything that he needed to know, right? So it was a lo- it was a learning process as he sort of went along. And also he was, you know, in an industry that was fairly sort of new. And I think that having a, a website that is dedicated to education is still relatively a, a new concept. So, mm-hmm. you know, th- there's a lot of stuff that you have to learn not just in terms of just putting out content, but in terms of how do you build something that can sustain you financially and creatively. So, you know, going in, I'm sure that there are a lot of things that you you didn't know, but, you know, that can often be the thing that deters people from making the leap, from making the choice. So what were some of those considerations and how did you surmount them? Well, to me, the scariest part of it is I didn't come from an entrepreneurial family. Uh, my dad was a doctor in the military and always had, you know, steady income and provided well for us. And so that's just kind of the path that I saw that that's what mm-hmm. a provider does. And so, and that's what law was for me. And it just, more than anything, it was a mindset shift to to see that, you know, I, I can provide for my family by going and creating my own business. That was, I guess that may seem obvious, but since I didn't have any frame of reference for that, that was probably the biggest hurdle. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there were, of course, a lot of just technical things like, okay, you have a blog with people coming to it about photography information. How does that earn money? You know, yeah. uh, are we going to do ads or we're going to sell classes or eBooks or, you know, what is that going to become? Uh, because just having people, doesn't translate to an income. And so I started teaching, well, I started with eBooks and I was really fortunate because 
I, I don't know if I started today back then if I could have made it successful, but I really was lucky at a good time because I I wrote an ebook of just very basics, just the things I had learned so far, not pretending to be an expert, but just, hey, this is what I've learned. And if you're learning too, this is you know what you'll probably go through in your first six months of learning. And it was right at the time that the iPad was launching and ebooks were just hot, right? Yeah. Everybody wanted to read a book on a screen. And so it was it was a lucky time uh, for me uh, to to hit on that trend and and but then I had a little bit of confidence that I could do other things. So how do you, how did you sort of decide what you sort of dedicate your time to? Because I'm assuming that you started this all by yourself at first. You oh know, yeah, you know before you started involving uh, contributors and like I find it's like I only have so many hours during the day and there's so mm-hmm. much stuff that needs to get done in order to. You know, not only create the content, but in terms of just preparing for the next show and the next episode, updating the website, social networking. So how did you sort of figure out, okay, how do I prioritize the things that I choose to do with my time? And and unlike a lot of people, you know, you have young children and a wife that mm-hmm. plays into that. It's not like you're single and you can dedicate 24 hours to this stuff. You have to make right. a lot of you have to think about a lot of different things. So how did you sort of determine your priorities and determine, you know, and figure out, okay, this is the kind of stuff that I need to do today in order to make sure that, you know, the wheels are always greased. I think that was actually something that helped me is that I did have that time limitation, at least in the beginning, because, uh, you know, I, I was in law school, I had to focus on law school. And so I only had, you know, an hour or two to spend on the website each day. And so in that time, I could only do the one thing that helped the most. And for me, that was writing, it was writing content as much as I could. And since I only had time for one thing, I I couldn't, I didn't have time. It was impossible for me to become distracted by other things because there, it just wasn't a possibility. And often what happens and what I have since seen in the years since I started, you know, I've been doing this full time for five years now, um, that it's so easy once you add time to get distracted with that Facebook and that Pinterest and all oh, these yeah. other things that sometimes I've I found that I, I look at my schedule and I say, holy cow, I spent this whole month working on things that are good, but I never got to that one essential thing that actually helps move things forward. So how do you identify what those things are? Because uh, as you just said, there are a lot of things that can pull pull at your time. How do you determine, okay, this is the thing that's going to be the best value for my time? I would say just having a very close connection with the people that you're serving. And for me, I was teaching those online, those, uh, sorry, in-person photography classes, the adult ed classes. So I was with my target audience, uh, you know, every time I taught a class. And so I could easily see what they needed next. And, you know, if you're consistently over time hitting the things that your customers, your target audience wants, uh, they're going to stick around and they're going to like it. And so I I didn't have time to focus on the marketing and the things that were mostly about me. I could only focus on the customer. So who did you, who was your early, early audience? Who were these people? What kind of photography were they interested in? What were they hungry to learn? I think a lot of it was just hungry to learn in general. They were uh, mostly senior citizens. They were retired people. It was in Southwest Florida in Naples. And there's just a lot of retired people there, especially during the winter months, a lot of snowbirds. 
And so they would take just various adult ed classes, uh, you know, every six weeks, they'd switch to a different one and just learn different things. A lot of people were getting the DSLRs as the prices, you know, as they were starting to become four hundred, $500. It was kind of that era where, you know, when you went to Costco, you picked up a, a DSLR and now okay. fewer people do that. Um, and so there were just a lot of people interested in learning the basics of photography at the time. And uh, I was I was in a unique position to to be in good contact with that. So when you decided to, to make this your full time business, how did that impact the amount of time that you got to dedicate to your photography? Because a lot of people dream about having their own business, thinking that they're going to spend all this time shooting. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's even more of a challenge to do it in my experience. But I'm wondering what it was like for you. Well, I've been really fortunate since I'm uh, since Improved Photography is a general photography website. Um, I, I I'm fortunate to be able to work on passion projects most of the time. Uh, you know, I, I don't have a client that oh I need to go shoot this specific stock photo or I don't need to go do this family portrait. Uh, I can really do whatever is interesting to me, and then. And, and if I have that passion for a project, usually other photographers are going to be interested in it. And so that part has, has definitely been fun that when I'm shooting, I can shoot what I want to shoot for the most part. But there is so much else to running a business. And I, and I go in in kind of waves of, you know, sometimes I'll have a year where I am just so addicted to photography and I'm traveling once a month to a different country and just shooting all like yeah. like crazy and other times I say man I gotta sit down and work on the business right now you know and I don't get out to shoot as much so it comes in waves so you know when uh, you say you meet you travel a lot so how do you sort of sort of fit that fit that in how do you determine okay I'm gonna you know dedicate time to just keeping my butt in the seat in the office and doing the work and and then deciding well, I need to get on a plane or get in a car and and spend days, if not weeks, visiting a place. Well, fortunately, everything goes better in the business when I travel. Uh, Because when I'm on a plane for 25 hours going to China, that's a lot of time to sit there and write. (laughs) There's there's no distractions. The internet barely works. You just get to write, you know. Um, And it helps me because I'm getting better. So I have more interesting things to say on the podcast because I'm discovering things um, at the time and not just repeating the same things that I've known for years. Um, But... That's really uh, that really wears on a family that intense travel schedule, and so I, I really balance that carefully. The reason that I wanted to, one of the main reasons I wanted to go after photography is I get to work from home, and my baby daughter walks through the walks past my little office all day, and uh, it's it's awesome to be with family. That is my priority, and so I have to definitely balance the travel and family. How old are your kids now? Eight, six, and one. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Prime ages. <laughs> yep. <laughs> they want dad around and I oh, want to be around. <laughs> That's good. So, you know, one of the things about writing content is, one, you have to be really adept at being able to explain your process to people and i I found that when it comes to doing it in writing that is that's especially challenging because when you do it all the time you really don't think about it right you just do it so Mm -hmm. you know what was part of your learning process in terms of learning how to you know adeptly write your process down so that other people could understand it that they could see you know each step and and be able to grasp it well enough that they could try it on their own i think law school helped with that 
big time. I mean, law school is only logic and writing. Like those are the only skills they care about in law school. Uh, And the whole purpose of any kind of legal document is as much as that seems crazy because you've read legal documents and they're impossible to understand. But but really a legal document is just clearly explaining every contingency that could happen in a situation, just clearly uh, explaining a situation. And so that really helped me uh, when I started to write. I was a decent writer before and that that really helped a lot. Um, and then, you know, you, you do what you're better at. I'm better at writing than I am in creating videos uh, or podcasts. I, I, I think writing is probably uh, my, my skill. And, and you have to learn the other ones. It doesn't always come naturally, but, but you, you know, when you're doing it all day, every day, you're going to learn. Yeah. And I think that's one of the wonderful things about in the age that we live in now is that you don't have to be a quote-unquote master of many of these things in order to be able to create the content and to find an audience. God knows, when I started this show, I knew nothing about radio or audio mm-hmm. editing, and you know, I just kind of sort of dove in. And it seems like for you, a lot of those things uh, were exactly the same, uh, the same experience. And I think it's it's important for people to remember that it's like you don't get started having everything in your tool chest that you need. Part of it is just, yeah. you just kind of dive in, you succeed at doing some things, you fail at doing others, you learn from both, and you try to improve, and you keep keep doing it and keep producing more content. But, you know, one of the difficult things, at least that I found at different phases, was just keeping the momentum going, right? Yeah, I, yeah, it's hard. Every podcaster has sat in front of a mixer for the first time and just wanted to cry. <laughs> can't figure the darn thing out. Everyone who is, has uh, gone big on YouTube has sat in front of the video editor and looked at shaky video and can't figure out the export settings and you just want to cry and mm. there's nobody to turn to. You're the entrepreneur. You got to do it all. You got to yeah. figure it out. Uh, everybody who has written a blog has spent some point where you tried new things uh, um, and you wrote for six months, and those articles just never ranked on Google. Uh, if you're the only one and you're trying new things, mastering a lot of skills, man, you're going to fail so often. And sometimes, man, that's hard as an entrepreneur to do that, to just sit there and day after day, you're like, man, I didn't co- accomplish anything this yeah. week. Uh, but you just keep going after it, and over time, you'll get the skills you need. Yeah, and, and one of the things that I think, one of the gifts that the show has given me has been uh, less of a fear about failure. You know, it's just like failure is an inevitability. It's going to happen. And the mm-hmm. thing is, is how do you how do you respond to it? That really sort of the the measure of you as a as a person. And especially. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. No, no. I, go ahead. I, I was going to say, especially where those failures are so public every time. Oh, yeah. You know, you make one mistake on the podcast, and it's got some noise in it, and you'll hear it like. 50 times the next day. <laughs> Somebody will email you, I don't know if you've noticed this yet, or, and then a Facebook message, and, and it's everywhere. And um, and that's that has definitely been hard for me at times. Yeah. At times I develop a thick skin and I'm moving forward and everything's going great. And at times, man, it really digs into you. And it's just tough to put one foot in front of the other when you're just making mistakes that a lot of people notice. Yeah. Well, you mentioned you do a lot of traveling and you recently came up with an app, which I, uh, was one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about. It's, it's sort of an app that helps you sort of 
find locations. And you, your team found an interesting way for you to discover the effectiveness of that app. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what the app was and, and how you had the opportunity to really test its worth. Yeah, so the app is called Really Good Photo Spots. Uh, it's only available for iPhone and iPod right now. Sorry, we're working on the Android por- portion, um, but it has a giant database of just awesome places to go take a picture. And we have spots in, not I can't say every country of the world. I doubt we have anything in Afghanistan. But <laughs> most every country in the world uh, will has, has spots. And some are better than the others. Sometimes you'll search a city and you'll find 100 spots. And in other cities, you might find 20. Um, uh, but we spent a long time. I had an awesome team working on it. Um, and we just, uh, and as well as the listeners of, of the Improved Photography podcast, submitted thousands and thousands of spots. And we, you know, it was cranking it out database entry putting them all into a database and then the app is is really just a way to quickly access it so if you're you know you're traveling to zion national park you can just press nearby spots and poof it'll give you a whole bunch of spots you can go shoot right there whatever's closest to you at the time and they and uh, you ended up going i think to norway was it i did so i i wanted to kind of test the app and, and have a little bit of fun too. And so I asked my assistant, Jesse, who's awesome. I said, all right, book me a trip somewhere in the world, but don't tell me where I'm going. And then I showed up to the airport having no idea where I was headed. And just, I read my ticket right there and got on the plane and went, I didn't know what to pack. I didn't know what kind of photography wow. I'd be doing. So it was, uh, it was, it was just so fun. It was stressful like crazy <laughs> and I made big mistakes. Um, but it was, it was really fun. So tell me, how did the app help you in terms of figuring out what you were going to do and where you were going to go? So I sat in the airport first and I opened the app and I just searched the city where I was going to land in Oslo. And uh, I I could see there wasn't a whole lot around there. Um, It's an interesting city. There were a few spots, uh, but I searched kind of other areas, more of the coastal fjord kind of areas of Norway. And I started to find lots and lots more spots there. And so that kind of helped me decide what major regions I was going to go to first. And then I kind of just drove to the region. I just kind of said, all right, this is kind of the epicenter of a bunch of spots around here. And then I would, I would plan really something, you know, two or three spots during a day that I, you know, I definitely want to go to these spots. And then I left a lot of just explore time because I, I love really good photo spots, the app for helping you find success. It's frustrating when you're spending all day as a landscape photographer driving around old dirt roads and you just can't find anything interesting. Mm-hmm. So I love having a few dedicated spots that are planned where I know and I'm probably going to have success at those spots. But I like to have lots of explore time between those uh, where I can just drive old dusty roads and uh, find old churches in the middle of nowhere and and interesting waterfalls and things like that too. So what kind of information does the app provide when you take a look at it and you punch in a city? Does it give you like GPS data? Does it give you background information, tips? Yeah, so it, every spot will have a picture and then a GPS coordinates, and you can just tap navigate. So wherever you are, it'll use your Apple Maps and you know give you directions right to the spot. 
And then it'll have a short description of just what's there, but usually you can kind of find that from the from the picture, unless there's something like, you know, if there's an entry fee to get into a spot, it'll usually say that. And and now that's being uh, submitted by thousands and thousands of people who are using the app. Uh, as you drive old dusty roads and you find cool places, you can click add a spot and you can submit and help other photographers find success. Also, this is actively changing. So people are contributing as others oh, are using. That's fantastic. Yeah. And every single day, I I am a little bit of a control freak, I guess, but I'm the only one who assigns the star ratings to the locations. So when you add a new spot, it comes to me and I'll give it a star rating one through five. Um, and and that, that just helps people that, you know, you know, let's say I have a long layover in New York. I want to sneak out of the airport for a couple hours and go shoot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ah, perfect. Or, you know, I'm on a business trip. I have an hour in London uh, tonight after my business meeting. You can, you know, let's just hit a couple five-star locations. And so to me, the the curation of it, having a star rating assigned to each spot and kind of verifying the coordinates on each one was really critical uh, because there are other apps out there for finding photo locations. And I just found that they, they weren't reliable enough uh, and, and not curated. It had some kind of wild stuff in there. I'll be in San Antonio, Texas, attending 4x5 Photo Fest on November 18th. I'll be conducting two live interviews with local photographers. It's, it's a great event, not only for San Antonio photographers, but anyone with a serious passion for photography. You can find out more by visiting 4x5photofest.com. That's 4x5photofest.com. And I will also be attending this year's Miami Street Photography Festival on December 7th through the 10th, where I'll be conducting a masterclass on street photography. The event showcases some legendary street photographers, which you don't want to miss. To find out more and to register for my class, visit MiamiStreetPhotographyFestival.org. You know, I was just listening to the uh, No Name Photography Podcast that's hosted by Sharky James and Brian Matias. Yeah. And they were talking about how photographers can get very protective especially landscape photographers of their locations and not mm-hmm. wanting to share them or, you know, being helpful to other ones. They just want to sort of hold everything close to their vests. And this sort of goes counter to that, which is kind of interesting. And, you know, you're in that world. So uh, what do you make of, of, of that and in your willingness of yourself and all these other photographers to share that information? Nobody became well known as a photographer by not sharing. It's the only way. Um, and so if your goal is that, um, then this is great. In fact, uh, I've heard from users who said, hey, you know, somebody just reached out to me because they saw I submitted a bunch of spots around here and now they want to come shoot with me. And that was something oh. I was hoping for when I created the app. Uh, and I've, we've, we've seen it now uh, that uh, photographers are seeing that. And we have some updates coming forward uh, that I think will help with that even more. But uh, in terms of just in general, the world is a big, big place. Um, there are so many wonderful, amazing things to be seen. Uh, and I, I just, I think it's just a great community of people who just are 
giving, people who just want to share. Uh, for example, when I went to Zion National Park, uh, I guess two weeks ago, I've been there a lot of times. And so I, I didn't jump right to the app because I really know Zion very well. Uh, but then after about second day, I looked on there and sure enough, a user had submitted a spot. It was like five minutes away and I had never been there. And it was one of my favorite views of Zion that I'd ever seen at Court of the Patriarchs with a little waterfall in front. I went there and shot and nobody's there. I mean, it's just this gorgeous little spot. And then you drive that same night past the Watchman view, which uh, for me personally, it's just, it wasn't as beautiful as the one that I'd found through the app. Uh, And there were literally a hundred photographers lined up on this bridge, shoulder to shoulder uh, shooting there uh, at times when I've, when I visited before. And it's, uh, there's, there's just so many neat places around the world. And by sharing with others, you can help other people to discover it and enjoy them. Yeah, I think one of the, the the fears is that what you saw at that that location that you were driving by is what's going to happen to these locations that these photographers sort of treasure. You know. Yeah, that's a great point and definitely one that I thought about because I thought, yeah, that's the last thing I want to do. But let's take that exact situation. Um on that bridge, uh, looking at the Watchman view, which probably a lot of your listeners have been to, it's a very famous spot. I mean, you have a hundred photographers. There's no walkway there. It's right by a road. Uh, the park rangers really don't like people going there at all because it's, I mean, your feet from cars whizzing past you. Uh, and you have a hundred photographers just slamming this one spot. Now there you're standing on a road. Sometimes you're not. And you can really do a lot of environmental damage mm-hmm. when that happens. Now, not having other photo spots isn't going to stop people from going and taking pictures. They're going to go, but they only know a few. And so we all clump up and we do a lot of environmental damage because of it. Zion National Park is thousands of acres. There are tons of beautiful places that people don't know about it. That environmental impact is severely lessened if we don't all clump in the same spot. And so I feel like it helps the issue uh, because it helps photographers to not clump up because it's a big world out there as long as we don't just go to the same five spots every time. Yeah, and I think there's a propensity to gravitate to locations that are very easily easily accessible uh, from the car. You know, because there's some places that are just stunning, but it's like you're only going to get there by hoofing it. And that just mm-hmm. cuts out a lot of people who just don't want to think about hiking in three, five miles into a location in order for the potential of getting a shot. So that's, I think that's always a consideration. I mean, the, the more accessible the location is, you know, the more photographers you're going to get. It's almost inevitable. So very good point. You see that in Iceland. Uh, there's one road going all the way around the circumference of the island, and there are a million awesome spots right around the ring road. And so everybody goes fo- and photographs those very famous spots around the ring. But there's a lot of country that's not along that one road. You yeah. know, there's a big country with amazing, uh, amazing places, and it just often doesn't get explored because it's less accessible. You know, one of the things that I've grown to appreciate about landscape photography, because I got to tell you, when I was first into photography, I didn't get landscape photography. I was like, (laughs) man, why do people want to go around the world taking pictures of rocks? (laughs) That was that was my mindset. And then I started working at Outdoor Photographer and uh, I started, you know, being immersed in all this work. And I realized, oh, my God, there's so much more to this than I thought. The attention to lighting, uh, the attention to composition was it was something that really amazed me. 
And I think it's, as much as I think street photography is, is a challenge, I think that landscape photography is especially a challenge because you have to look at the world in a very graphic way. You know, you have to have a real keen awareness of line and shape and the interrelationship between objects, you know, rocks, trees, mountain ranges, sun, moon. Tell me about how teaching, you know, landscape photography and other types of photography have helped you with respect to that that kind of work. Yeah, I, when you go shoot a landscape for the for the first many many times, it's really easy to get uh, kind of taken in by all of nature that's happening there. You know, you go to Mesa Arch and you see everything there. Uh, You're just enjoying all of nature. And so you stand up as you're standing there, you shoot with a wide-angle lens to to reflect the wide-angle view of your eyes and seeing this scene, and you just kind of crack a picture. And then uh, you see the photo, and it's fine, uh, but it just doesn't have that the composition. It just doesn't have that feel of a professional landscape photo. And then as you start to improve, you you learn that it isn't just about nature. It's about you organizing what's in nature and finding uh, finding things to put in the foreground that then blend with what's in the background and then and creating an overall shape between that rock and the sun way in the distance, etc. So what what helped you to be able to sort of refine your eye for for compositional stuff? Because you know there's the rule of thirds, and there's about you know use a wide angle lens and keep something really relatively close to the camera for establishing a, a, a strong foreground element. But those principles alone don't automatically equate into a really stunning landscape. So. You know, you, you, you spend all this money and all this time to get to a location, so you want to make the most out of it. So beyond those sort of rudimentary skills or, or, or knowledge base, what helps you to sort of really take it to another level where the images are really paying off for you? The biggest thing for me was once I started seeing things in what I call blocks or uh, creating an overall shape with the different elements. So let's say you're you have a you know a, a canoe right here in the foreground, and then a nice uh, lake, and then a mountain in the you know snowy mountain in the background. Mm-hmm. That is so many different shapes and so many things happening. It's a beautiful scene, but somehow you have to make all of those things work together as one. And so when I saw all of those shapes as just different blocks that I needed to organize in the frame to make sense together. So an example of that, maybe I have the shoreline in front of me creating kind of the base of a triangle and the canoe is kind of angled. uh, So it's kind of pushing that line up the right side of the triangle. uh, And then the mountain kind of reinforces that triangle at the top. So all of these disparate elements are working together to create one simple shape. Mm. And then you see it and you say, ah, everything seems to fit. And you may not be able to put your finger on why this makes sense instead of standing a foot to the right or the left. But I've found that really it's making those overall shapes and then things feel, ah, it worked. Is that a hard principle to, to pass on? It's hard for me. I Once I first kind of uh, 
I don't know if I discovered that. The first first time I really started to focus that uh, on that, uh, I thought, okay, that's cool. And then you just kind of go back and doing the same thing that you've always <laughs> done, kind of following your recipe. Um, but when I really stop and I, you know, you go out and you take a thousand photos, 200 photos, whatever you're going to go take at a landscape shoot. Uh, you know, you take a shot here, you move a foot to the right, shoot here, and everything's like, eh, you know, and then you go back to Lightroom and though it was unclear in the field which shot was the best, you go to Lightroom and you look at it big on a screen and you can flip through them so fast and you say, no, 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 no. Yes, that's the one. And to me, the yes, that's the one is usually when everything fit together. And then as you practice it more and more, you're going to be able to start making those shapes in the field. So yeah. you have less of the no, 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 and more of the yes. Are you at a point now that when you are making those photographs, because you typically have a really a finite time where the light is just like ideal. Mm-hmm. You know, are you the kind of photographer that, that shoots a lot? Or have you gotten to the point where you only have to shoot a few selects and you have a good feel as to what you need to do in order to get the shot that you, that you eventually work on in Lightroom and, and put out as a print or post? I definitely shoot a lot fewer frames than I used to. Sometimes, though, too few. Uh, sometimes, I, you know, you get and you shoot and you say, ooh, I, I wish I were to work to this a little bit more, you know, uh, because you get a little bit overconfident and you say, no, I, I can do this. This is going to work as a good comp- composition. And then you get back to the computer and you say, yeah, it, it worked, but we needed to move around a little bit more and get something more creative, a different perspective, etc. And so it's a balance of, you know, shooting too much where you just, you know, just kind of spraying and praying. And then sometimes where you just get a little bit too stuck on, on what you initially see and you don't develop it as far. That's an interesting point. Cause I, I've been very focused on my own process uh, in the last several months. Uh, inevitably when I go out to shoot, there are certain pictures that I know I can make well that I find myself being drawn to and that I really have to go, wait a second, pull back. Where else can I take it? How else can I push it? What risks can I take in order to try and create a picture that I wouldn't have created last week or, or a year before? What's that like for, for you? I mean, you go out to these locations and you know, you've made great landscape pictures before, but you know, there's always a risk that, yeah, you'll make an image that's just as good as what you've done before, but you want to push yourself. So how do you, you know, what, what's your process for being able to determine what, what that line is so that you can move past it? Oh, that that hit me this 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 same week. I was I'm printing a huge a four foot by eight foot print in my living room. I'm so excited to get oh, it. Wow. But I was looking through my portfolio. And I was so sad when I looked at my portfolio and I said, my favorite image I've ever taken was three years ago. And, uh, oh, you know, you want that to keep moving. Right. Um, and and I've, I've taken great work uh, since then that I've been happy with, but still my favorite was three years ago. And you want to keep, you can want to keep developing and getting better. Uh, so I, I know exactly what you mean by that. Uh, I, I don't know what the answer is. For me, I love the technology and the technique and stuff. And so one thing that helps me to see in a different way is just trying out different things. Lately, I've been obsessed with time-lapse photography. Mm. Um, and it really helps you to see in a different way because now you're focused so much on motion and how things are changing instead of just what's in front of you at the at the, at the moment. So I love learning different techniques. Uh, it helps me to push further. Yeah, I, I see that with, you know, as you mentioned, that with the site, it's a general photography site. 
websites. So even though the the big focus may be landscape, you 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 do portraits, you do you know sports. So how is practicing and teaching those other types of photography helping you in terms of the work that you really that you really love to do? Well, a lot of things. So, for example, I, I don't really do real estate photography, um, but I have been getting a lot of people, uh, listeners of the podcast, um, visitors to the Improved Photography website who are, have been interested in that lately. And so I worked with Josh Corrigan, who's one of the top real estate photographers in the country, um, and we uh, I recorded a tutorial of him teaching that. And I was kind of there as the student, kind of learning from him as he was doing it. And I saw the way that he, uh, photographed the exterior of a home using flash to kind of uh, pop light on each of the shrubs and all the all the landscaping outside and stuff. And I thought, holy cow, you could do that with a landscape. Uh, you could take a flash around and highlight all different areas of the landscape. You'd have to tone it down a lot mm-hmm. because on a, on a home, there's often exterior lighting. So that looks somewhat natural to have hot spots and stuff everywhere. In a landscape, that's weird. That doesn't usually happen. So you'd have to really tone it down. But wow, that would be so cool and something I haven't seen people do before. Uh, So learning, just going really broad in your knowledge uh, can help you with the one area where you want to go down. I I usually think of uh, education, I heard this once as a T, uh, where the top is really broad. You go an inch deep and a mile wide and Mm -hmm. you learn portrait photography and night photography and everything. And then you take one topic and you really drill down to it, making the stem of the T. And and by having that that T-shaped knowledge, it helps you to go further in that one topic. that's That's an excellent point you are able to you know have a a level of relationship with the people who visit your site and listen to your podcast but you're also collaborating with some uh, a diverse range of photographers uh which i think is like a a cool benefit uh because you get to speak to some amazing you know and talented people and engage with them as peers what's what's been the best part of that for you Ah oh, man, it's so inspiring when you see somebody. I'll I'll give a shout out to uh to one of the writers on the website who started out as a listener, uh, is Brian Pax. He's only been doing photography for I think two and a half years now. I mean, he just picked up a camera two and a half years ago, and holy cow, he is so good. Yeah. Um, and when you see that. That's inspiring. Uh, that's just so neat to see uh, to see people just going after things and learning everything they can. Uh, you can't help but, but be inspired. Uh, I'm sure you see the same oh, things. Yeah. It's uh, just inspiring. When you see the work. It's so cool. Yeah, it's inspiring and it can drive me crazy. Yeah, yeah, that's how long you've been shooting <laughs> oh two years five years yeah and i go holy <laughs> crap i've been doing this for decades and it's like this this person's just picked it up but i think it really is a testament to when you have the focus to really dedicate uh, a lot of time not to sitting in front of a computer watching youtube videos but going out there and actually making the photographs i mean that's why the people that i've seen have gotten so good within a short period of time uh, and these are people who are who are not professional photographers they have like real jobs uh, families yet despite those challenges they go out there and they make some amazing stuff happen and their growth their curve is like such a is amazing it's amazing yeah it's awesome 
Uh, yeah, it, it's so fun to see. And I believe that's going to happen more and more and more over the next few years because uh, technology is getting out of the way of photography. It really is. Um, where it was so essential to know aperture ISO and shutter speed in film days, and you still need to know it today if you're a serious photographer, right? Yeah. But there are guys picking up cell phones all the time and taking some pretty cool photos. I, I mean, some really neat stuff. Uh, you, you look around Instagram with guys who have no photography knowledge, and it's very different from what we produce as you know serious photographers, where we focus more on the fine art, the lighting and composition and stuff. But it just has that fashionable, trendy flair to it uh, that's really attractive to people, and and that's cool. I think technology is starting to get out of the way of of the process of image making. Yeah, and what I really love about it is when I see people making choices that I would never consider, and it just plants the seed. It's like, oh yeah, mm -hmm. you can, you can create a composition that just has this graphic element in the upper left hand corner and very little else, and still make it work. You know, that just blows the whole rule of thirds out of the water. You know, and all that stuff that we sort of automatically adhere to, just because we've been doing it for so long, and we just kind of have this this assumption of. Well, not assumption, but we just kind of have an understanding of what usually makes an image work, that we're mm -hmm. less, we're a little, a little too hesitant to take some big risks and to actually let things fail. And that's something that I'm, I increasingly go out and try to do. I purposely go out and risk failure just to see whether or not I can pull it off. And I know that some of the images that I post that people look at it and they could just tear it apart in a critique session. But for yeah. me, it's like, I'm I'm trying to discover a different way of seeing and a different way of shooting, so for me that's that's part of the process that I don't I don't uh, I don't hide from, and I think that seeing other people who are actively doing that and producing great results has made the digital age one of the most uh, progressive uh, times to be a photographer than any other time that I can have imagined. Yeah, I. Photography is changing not just the technology, but what we what we deem to be a good photo is changing. Um, I love Ansel Adams' work, but if you were to take many of those photos and post them on 500px today, they wouldn't become popular mm -hmm. if it didn't if we didn't know it was Ansel Adams, uh, because uh, what we deem to be a, a good photo or, or what's trendy, what catches on right now, uh, is not exactly the same thing. Now, don't take me the wrong way. Uh, I mean, I love the work of of the the greats and the, and the history of photography and the wonderful things they did. But I'm just saying, what's what's catchy now is not what was catchy 50 years ago, right. um, and and uh, and I I love that that it's it's changing and different and fun. But sometimes it's also important to kind of transcend uh, what what's happening. Uh, you know, the flavor of the month in photography and create something a little bit more classic. An example of that: painters can paint very photorealistic paintings. I mean, you can make a painting to look just like a picture almost. Um, but when you walk through an art gallery, is that what you see? Do you see photorealistic paintings? Usually not. Usually the paintings, you know, you'll see flowers and stuff, but they're, they're coarse, heavy brush strokes everywhere uh, without the fine detail that you would see in a picture. And it makes you wonder, why is that? Uh, why is it that, that uh, the masters of painting aren't 
creating the most realistic thing that they can. And then you think about photography and some of the techniques that we see um, as being trendier creative at the time, and you say, hey, maybe that's why. Um, you know, you look at HDR from five years ago when it was the big thing to do these heavy right. HDRs and stuff, and whatever, it's been criticized to death. But there was a time when it was just very popular. And I think one of the things that made it popular was it wasn't as photorealistic. It changed it a little bit. You look at things like the Orton effect where you're intentionally adding some blur to the to the subject, to the to the main part of the photo um, with with remaining detail in there. And and that's something that's very popular right now um, where it, it's not as photorealistic and that's kind of what we like uh, so it's neat to look at the the great uh, the greats in art and where we've kind of come and then kind of applying that to today and seeing how you can take some of those principles and in and in, in insert them into photography yeah. well my last question that i ask each guest is i ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore and it can be anyone someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that photographer be and why? You know, I, I, I mean, I have to go back to Brian Pex. He's really getting a shout out on this one. He's, uh, <laughs> okay. uh, he's just a really, he's a great guy, first of all, uh, but his work is really inspiring. And so I and encourage you to, to check him out. Uh, you can just search Brian Pex, P-E-X, um, and it'll take you to Pex Photo is his website. Uh, and it's just, it's so cool to see that. And you just think, man, this is is what can be done in two and a half years. And, and it just looks like a totally, this could be from any professional landscape photographer. And I love that. That's just, it's neat. And it's inspiring to see that. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, man. I really enjoyed uh, finally getting a chance to connect with you and, and uh, having you tell your stories. So thank you. Hey, it was awesome to be on here. I've listened to your show for a long time and uh, dreamed to be able to be here. Thanks to Jim for sharing his time and his story with us. Check out his photography by visiting photographyidaho.com and check out his great site Improve Photography by visiting improvephotography.com And thank you for your continued support of The Candid Frame. We're close to releasing 400 episodes and I would love to see a host of five-star reviews to help promote the show in the iTunes store. If you haven't already, please take the time to write a review. Your ratings and comments help people to discover the great conversations that we offer here at TCF. Thanks to Shane Nagel from Australia for his five-star review. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash thecandidframe, or you'll find a link in the show notes and the Candid Frame website. Or if you just want to make a one-time contribution to the show, you can do so via PayPal by clicking on the donate button on the Candid Frame website or the show notes. Thanks to Ellen Brooks for her recent contribution. I can't thank you enough. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS and Android. Not only will you immediately receive the latest episode on your phone or tablet, but you can also easily share your favorite episode on your social networks and help spread the word. And if you want to drop me a line with comments or suggestions for the show, you can email me directly from the app. Download it today by clicking on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. 
The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at the other martintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at IbadianX. And this is IbadianX, and this is The Candid Frame. Candid Frame.